Well, good morning, church. Would y'all stand as we sing about the great things our God has done?
you've done today, church.
Beautiful morning out there. Welcome you here to uh, Shelby Christian Church. And those of you who are online, we welcome you as well. Uh, this is a great morning. A great morning to be up and be able to praise God. I love that last song we sang. You know, it talks about turning graves into gardens. What a wonderful thought. Well, this last week I was up here, last time I was up here, I spoke a little bit about the bread we eat during communion. And this week we're going to talk a little bit about the cup. Now, Jesus' disciples had sat down for Passover. Now, Passover was an extremely important event in the lives of the Israelites. They celebrated the fact that God had given them a solution to a problem, getting them out of Egypt, out of slavery. By them slaughtering a lamb and placing that lamb's blood around the doorposts, the angel of death passed by the Israelite families. So when Jesus sat down, it says, with his disciples, after they had finished the meal, he took the cup. Well, there are four cups of wine that are drank during the Passover. And the third cup is called the cup of redemption. It was to remind them of that blood that was put over top of the doorposts. So when Jesus took the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. He was saying something has changed. So now instead of putting the blood over top of the doorpost, I will shed my blood on the cross. That's how important that cup was. It is an awesome reminder of what Christ did for us. So in these next few moments, we have the communion stands all over the room. Please go up and get your communion and take the time to remember how his blood gave us a new covenant. Let's pray together. Father God, we just praise you this morning. 
praise you for awesome worship that we've been able to pour out our hearts to you. And Father God, I pray that your spirit would just flow through these, this, this place. That everyone who walks in the doors would feel your holy presence. So we've come to worship you. To say how great and awesome and mighty and glorious you are. And how your holiness surpasses all things. So this morning as we reflect on what your son did for us. May we be reminded of that blood which was poured out for us. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.
good. Uh, sip on here. Good morning, Shelby Christian Church. Hey, would you guys agree with me that we need a revival? All right. Would you agree? Would you agree that we need a revival in our community, in our country? and around the world. I, I love hearing stories about places in other parts of the world where the church uh, today in 2021 is exploding. There are places all over the world, places that you wouldn't even suspect, China and Korea and, and all over the continent of Africa, that the church is just exploding um, because people understand that we need Jesus more than anything else. And sometimes in, in our context and in our culture, a lot of other things can kind of distract us, right, from really pursuing a life of passion. I love the little tagline that we're using for this uh, series. We're in a nine-part series this summer talking about the, the life of David. And, and up to this point, what you guys have noticed in Dave's uh, um, sermons the last several weeks is that David is this, the King David is this, um, he's the hero of, of all the stories. Like he's this guy that we kind of put on this pedestal. What you'll start, start to see after today, because this is another one of those, oh, where David, he's a really good guy. But after this, you'll start to see, man, David had some flaws, some real serious flaws. You guys know about some of these and we're going to talk about those, but I love the fact that through all of his life, it's, um, in scripture, we know more about David, more said about King David than anyone else other, other than Jesus himself. And so we see this life, this passion that's, that's pursuing this relationship with God. And that should inspire us. Have you guys ever been around someone or watched someone that just has a passion for something? Last Sunday afternoon on Father's Day, I went home. I was able to sit on the couch after we had uh, lunch with our family. We took Bro uh, Brody to Camp Calvary. I came home. I was able to catch the last few holes of the uh, U.S. Open. So it was the 121st U.S. Open. It was at Torrey Pines in San Diego. And as I sat down to watch it, the, um, the guy guys were just falling apart. Like if you watch golf or follow golf, I'm not a golfer, don't necessarily watch golf all the time, but when it's one of those big tournaments, I'll kind of turn it on. And so I was watching this and like, they were all really close. And like, there was like four or five guys that were like, you know, like going for the championship there at the end on the final, in the final round. And, and they were all falling apart. Like they were just, just like, I was like, I could do better than that. You know, out there like, what are they, these guys doing? Hitting it all over the place. And, and then there, one guy, his name's John Rom. He kind of just rose up out of the ashes of everyone else. And on the last two holes, he made some incredible putts. If you're a golfer and you're watching this, you're like, that was pretty impressive. But what I loved about it, you'll see some pictures here in a second. What I loved about John Rom was he had this passion. He was pumping his fist and he was going, yeah. And I like, and like he was getting excited and all the people were clapping and cheering and all this. And like, I didn't know much about John Rom. I didn't know anything about his career or his family or his golf or anything. But in that moment, I found myself rooting for that guy. Cause I was like, that guy cares. That guy has put a lot into this. That guy has a passion. I'll, I'll watch this guy. Maybe you guys grew up with someone, maybe it was a teacher that you had in school, that they were just really passionate about what they were teaching. And because of that, it wasn't necessarily a subject that you like necessarily would gravitate towards, but because they were passionate about it, you were like, you know what? 
I'm kind of digging this because they are so excited about this. Maybe you were someone like you, you played a sport and you had a coach. That whatever sport it was, whatever they were trying to teach you or coach you through, like they're just passionate about what they're doing. And you're like, I'll follow that guy or I'll follow her because they are so passionate about what's going on. Maybe you have, have worked with someone that is just so passionate about the career choice that they've taken. And you're like, it's just a job, dude. And they're like, no, I love this job. It's just, like, I think about this. I, when I wake up, this is what I want to do with my life. Have you ever been around someone that's just so passionate about life that they just love life and they wake every, every morning? Sometimes like you're like one of those people, like it's kind of annoying because you haven't had your coffee yet. And you're like, why are you so excited or whatever? But they just wake up every day and they're just passionate about life. Passion should move us. The passion that we see in others and the passion that we have in our lives. And so that's why I love David's life. There's a, um, a phrase that gets thrown around that gets talked about when we talk about David. Dave's mentioned this last several weeks. I want you to look at this um, passage of scripture. It's a verse. It's just a thought about who David was. God looked at David and he said this. He said, I found David. I'm going to stop there for a second because here's what I get when I read that. Apparently, God's looking for someone. And it's like, I'll look at the heart of this person. I'm looking at the heart of this person. I'll look at the heart of this person. And then he finds David. And he says, I found him. Ha, I've, I've found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And then he says this, he will do everything I want him to do. I love that. The fact that God looks at David, he says, this guy, this kid is not perfect. He's going to make mistakes. He already has. He's human, but he'll do whatever I need him to do. So I'm going to go with David, right? And so you see early on in the life of David that God recognizes this man that has a passion, that has a heartbeat for God's things. God looks at his heart and says, hey, I know that he values the same things that I value, that he'll do everything that I need him to do, that I ask him to do, that I command him to do, that I want him to do. And I got to thinking this week, what would it be like for us if we understood that God looked at our lives that way? If he looked at your heart, he looked at your life and said, that person, she's a, she's a person after my own heart because I know that she'll do whatever I need her to do. That guy, he's, he's with me. He'll do whatever I need him to do. And because David had that kind of an attitude and that kind of a heart, God did some incredible things in his life. Here's what you'll see when you study the life of David. David did not need to search for self-worth in this world. David felt God's presence in his life. There's a, there's a quote. Um, you'll see this on the screen here in a second. too. I've been reading a book about the life of David in preparation for these sermons. And it's a book by J.S. Park, and it's called just The Life of King David. And here's, a, here's one of the things he said in the book this week that I was reading that, that I wrote down. He said, God anointed David, not because David was extraordinary, but because God is incredibly extravagant. And only the Creator can ascribe true worth to His creation. Not people or popular, popular opinion but simply God himself. You see, David never had to prove his worth to anyone else. David recognized that his worth came from God himself. 
And so when they were looking for a new king, David didn't get caught up in the politics of that because he knew who he was. When when David steps out and faces Goliath, he knew it wasn't about him, about what he could accomplish, but it was about who God was inside of him. This extraordinary example of someone who's passionately pursuing a life after God's own heart. He had a heart that was passionate. And so here's what I would ask you this morning. You want to be used by God? You want God to use your life? Maybe you've seen God use your life in the past and you recognize that the attitude that we have to have in that is to simply say this. God, here I am. The offering that I have to give you is only my life. It's not much, not the smartest, I'm not the most talented, I'm not the tallest, I'm not the the prettiest or the most handsome. I don't have it all figured out. In fact, I'm going to fail and to fall a lot. But here is my life. God, would you take it and use it however you choose? That's exactly what David did. And so this morning, I want us to look at a story that I think we can learn some things from in the life of King David. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we're going to actually read this whole chapter. And I don't kind of, oh my gosh, we're going to read a whole chapter. We're going to read a whole chapter because it's only 13 verses. And this is a really cool story uh, this morning. And I think you're going to, I think you're going to get a lot from. Because what we are seeing in this um, journey studying David's life is that his life intersects with people all the time, all, uh, all along his life at different kind of like you know, really crucial moments in his life. It, it intersects, inter- intersects with certain people. And so this morning we're going to see how his life intersects. It kind of calls back upon some of the things that have happened in the past with David. And you'll see how, how David uses the opportunity in front of him to do something really special this morning. And like I said, it's second Samuel chapter nine. And here's what it says. We'll read a few verses and we'll stop here for a second. It says one day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Now, Saul, you remember last week, Dave talked about Jonathan and how Saul, they, they die in battle. And so Saul was the first king of Israel. Jonathan was uh, David's best friend. And so it says here, anyone who I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake, he says. And so he summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. He says, are you Ziba? David asked. Yes, I am, sir, Ziba replied. And then verse 3 says, The king then asked him, Is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. And Ziba replied, Yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Maker, son of Emil. Verse 5 says, So David sent for him and brought him from Maker's home. His name was Mephibosheth, and he was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. And David said to him, Greetings, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Now let me stop there for a second, because apparently David was reminiscing 
about some of the, the conversations he'd had with his best friend, Jonathan. What he'd told Jonathan before Jonathan's death was, Jonathan, if anything happens to you, I'll take care of your family. I'll take care of your descendants. Don't worry about, about your family members. Don't worry about anyone else because when I become king, it's all, I'll take care of your family. That was a big deal because back then when a new king would assume the throne, they would kill the descendants of all the old king so that none of them would raise up and try to assume the throne. And so that was kind of practice, common practice. And so David looks at Jonathan and says, Jonathan, I'm not going to do that. You're my best friend. If you have any descendants, I'm going to take care of them. And so David remembers this. One day he just kind of, he's sitting in 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 the kingdom there. He's sitting there and he remembers, oh yeah, we had that conversation. And he asked that question, does, does Jonathan have any descendants? And onto the scene arrives Mephibosheth. Now, I wish, I wish this name was like, I wish his name was like John or Jake or something, because I have to say it a lot today, but his name was Mephibosheth. I've been, I've been sitting at home all week. I was like, what did you say? I just said Mephibosheth. 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 I've been practicing, okay? Because this isn't an easy name to say. But, the, but this guy, this, this young man arrives on the scene. So imagine if you're Mephibosheth. You've been sent. Don't, you're going to laugh every time I say this, are you? Because it's hard. I know. You guys are going to laugh at me. Just pray for me because I've got to say it like 50 more times today. Okay? Um, he, he arrives on the scene. And, and he's this guy who you can see in this, in this part of the story. He's already scared. He doesn't know. He's been hiding out. The king isn't even supposed to know that he exists. Right? And so he doesn't, he doesn't until this point. And so he arrives there on the scene, and he says in this kind of shaking voice, right, he hobbles in there into the, into the throne room of the king, and he says, I am your servant. And, and David recognizes that he's scared, and he can imagine what, what's going through Mephibosheth's mind. And so in verse 7, it says this, Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show you kindness. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Whoa, this is a big deal, right? The people that they got to sit with the king and eat at the king's table were only the king's family and the king's, the king's immediate um, commanders and, and people like that, very important people. And so he offers Mephibosheth a, a seat at the table. What incredible generosity. Can you imagine, though, can you imagine being, being this young man, Mephibosheth, at this point? He's, he's grown up in his life, hiding out in some remote part of the country, hoping that the king never finds out that he's alive because it could cost him his life, right? He's the, the grandson of the former king, Saul. His, his father, Jonathan, is dead. And, and he's this person who is, is weak, is crippled. And the Bible says that but neither one of his feet worked. And so he was this either some kind of apparatus that he was using, braces or crutches. And he would walk around. He would, he would move around however he could. He was, he was probably considered an outcast and a weakling. Our friend Mark Jones, when, when, uh, in talking about uh, this scenario and this story, he said, Have you ever noticed that when someone, uh, sometimes they'll, they'll say the word invalid, you know, talking about someone who's crippled, or we, we don't use that term, you know, anymore. But if you ever looked at that word invalid, like 
you can break it down, it can be two words, invalid, right? That, that, that someone is like, there's this thought that like because their legs don't work or because of whatever condition they may have that wouldn't be considered like, you know, normal, that, that they were invalid. And so that was kind of who Mephibosheth was to this point, that he'd lived this life that he thought he was worthless, that he wasn't meant for much, that his life didn't, didn't really matter because of his physical condition. And I got to thinking this week about, about him, but also about us. I wonder how many times, because of our brokenness, maybe not physical brokenness, but our spiritual, spiritual brokenness, that, that we think about our relationship with the king, not King David, but the king of kings, and we think, you know what? I'm not really worth much. I'm broken. I'm messed up. I just don't have much to offer God, I don't see how in the world you could ever see me as valid or useful or special in your kingdom. And yet we know, right? We know that because of of his great love and his mercy and God's kindness that he'll use anyone. I mean, look at me standing up here. Like this, like you guys, like, like there's no reason why just an average, ordinary guy should be standing up here talking to you guys. But every time I get to do this, it's like, God, you will use anybody, won't you? That's incredible. And so I wonder in your life, if you've had those moments where you've like, God, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think you can use me because of what I've done in the past and because of who I am and because how other people perceive me. That's a little bit about oh, what's going on here with Mephibosheth and the king. But I want you to look at, at David's response to him. It says in verse 8, Mephibosheth bowed respectfully, and he exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show, show such kindness? And look at this. To a dead dog like me, right? I, I have a feeling that Mephibosheth had, had heard people, people had said that to him before. That people had called him that. That in his life, people had said, you're, wor- you're worthless. You're not, you're, I mean, a dead dog, right? Because you're, you're crippled in both feet. You're, you're not good to anyone. And so you're like this thing that like, it doesn't matter. You're invalid. I have a feeling that Mephibosheth had heard that over and over and over in his life. And then look at verse nine. It says, then the king summoned Saul's servants, servant Ziba. And he said, I have given your master's grandson, everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, he will eat here at my table. The Bible says that Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then verse 11 says, Ziba replied, Yes, my lord, lord the king, I am your servant. I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Verse 12 says, Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And from then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both ways, in case you didn't get it the first time that they said it in, in 2 Samuel, here it is again. He was crippled in both feet. He lived in Jerusalem, and he ate regularly at the king's table. Now, I love this story. Because this story paints an incredible picture of compassion. It's this generosity and kindness and compassion that you see in the life of David. David didn't have to do this, right? David was the king. He was in charge. He was living his best life. He is the guy. But he remembers 
his relationship, his friendship with Jonathan, who Dave preached about last week. And he remembers the conversations they had and the love they had, the friendship that they shared. And he said, you know, if if Jonathan has a, a relative out there still alive... I need to know about this. And so then when he walks into the, the, the throne room there and David realizes who he is, I, I can just imagine this, this wave of compassion and grace and mercy that comes over David's heart. And you see him, him do this. He gives, he gives it all away. He gives a lot away to Mephibosheth. He says, hey, I'm going to give you all this land and all this property and all these things. And you're going to be set up for the rest of your life. And, and Mephibosheth, I want you to hang out with me here close in the kingdom. And I want you to be right here with my family. I'm going to treat you like one of my own sons. And I love it because it was an example of, of true compassion. And so this morning, let's, <clears throat> I want us to look at... <clears throat> excuse me. I want us to look at three things that I think we can learn from this compassionate act that David exhibits here in this passage of Scripture. The first one is this. True compassion requires action. You know, you can, you can feel sorry for someone. You know, you can, oh, I, I have a, this feeling that, that I'm, I feel sorry for you. Or you can feel sorry about something that you've done, right? But it's not until you say, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me, that really the healing takes place, or at least begins to take place. You can have this feeling of sympathy, uh, a feeling sorry. You can have this feeling of even thankfulness. You can be thankful or grateful for something someone else has done in your life, right? But until you actually say it, hey, thank you for doing that, or show it, show your gratitude in some way, it, it doesn't really mean much. And so what we'll learn, what you'll see, is that compassion requires a lot of action in our lives. I love to think about some of these definitions. I wrote wrote these two things. Now, you guys know these things. But what's sympathy? Sympathy is when I feel sorry for someone, right? Sympathy is when you look at someone's situation and you feel sorry. You're like, oh, man, that really stinks. That is is horrible. I feel sorry that that's that's happened. Maybe some of you guys have watched this week the the collapse of those hotels, you know, in Florida. And you can can sympathize with what's going on. You're like, oh, man, that is so horrible. Horrible. I heard last night about another really tragic, like this air, a hot air balloon crash. Did some of you guys hear this? Like that crashed and like five people died because of hot air balloon, like malfunctions. Like, oh my gosh, what a horrible thing. And so when you hear of things like that, you, you can sympathize with that situation. Empathy is something that goes a step farther. Empathy is when you identify with the pain someone else is going through and you can put yourself right there in that place from that perspective. I feel your pain, right? Like I, you've, you've been there before. You know what they're going through because maybe you've gone through that before. Let me give you a few examples. Do you remember, do you guys remember when you were in, in seventh grade? Maybe some of you are like, oh, I don't actually. Maybe some of you do. Um, we have a seventh grader in our house uh, now. And last night I showed him how to shave for the very first time. You know, do you guys remember, do you guys remember your dad showing you how to shave for the, Melinda's like, would you please take him in there? He's got this stuff on his chin and it's really disgusting. I was like, I can't really see it. And Brody's like, I don't see anything. Like, oh yeah, I guess there it is a little bit. So we went in there like, all right, dude, here's how you shave. Uh, and she bought him this like one little, like, I guess like a, I guess they have beginner's razors or something. She's like, you want me to get that little beginner's razor? I was like, no, nah, I'll just use the regular one, you know? And so we were, I'm in there shaving. I was like, but do you remember like when you were like in middle school, 
guys, girls, like you remember all the things that went through your brain and your body and how you're changing and how all this stuff's going on. And you're like, yeah, I remember. And I wouldn't go back to that time for anything in the world. Right. You, you can, you can empathize with a middle school student or a high school student. You know, remember high school? Some of you are like, yeah, high school was the best time of life. I'd love to go back to high school. Some of the rest of you are like, I hated high school. I would never go back to that, but I understand what it's like. Right. Or, or this one. Hey, do you remember what it's like to be new in a town? I have a hard time with this one. I've been here my whole life. Maybe a lot of you guys have too. Have you, do you know what it's like to, to move into a new town, to go to a new school, to have to meet new people all over again and make new friends? If, if you've done that, you can empathize with others who have experienced that as well. What's it like to walk into a church for the very first time and not know where to go or what to say or where to sit? Or where the bathrooms are, right? I don't remember that. I have no real empathy in that area because it, it's something that I can't even relate to. But some of you guys can. What about this one? What's it like to battle an addiction? I, I don't necessarily know what that's like. I, it's hard for me to have empathy. I mean, if you, I mean, I guess... There are things that I'm addicted to, sugar, caffeine, but not serious things, right, that are really going to make my life crash and burn today. Maybe some of you guys can relate to some of those things. What about this one? What's it like to grow up in an abusive home? I, I don't know what that's like, but I bet some of you could empathize with someone who, who's gone through something like that. What about going through a divorce? I have no idea. What someone would feel like in the middle of something like that. What about losing a child? Some of you guys know exactly what that feels like. Or, or battling cancer, right? There are things that we can think of. What about you know, being alone? Feel like, feel, just feeling like you're alone and you're lonely. Some of you guys know what that feels like. And so when we can empathize with someone else, it takes us a step farther down the path of true compassion. Because when we empathize with someone, they say, oh yeah, now I, I know what, it, what it's really like. And, and maybe the next step is what's really important. I can, I can take some action. I wrote this down this week. Most of the time, most of the time, most of us have no idea what the rest of us are going through. Unless you've gone through it. Right? Most of the time, most of us have no idea what the rest of us are going through because we're really good at hiding it, right? We're really good at kind of tucking it away. And it's not until we, if we really share it with someone in prayer or say, hey, this is what I'm going through. You know someone that's a really close friend or family member. Most of the time, we don't know what the rest of us are going through. And so what compassion calls us to do, I see this all the time with, with kids in school, right? My teacher or my wife being a teacher and my boys both in public schools. And you know, they'll all come home with these stories of things that have happened at school, elementary school, middle school now. And it's like that, that have just bad things that have happened. Kids, kids acting out in horrible ways, things that have gone on. And I'm like, wow, that, that seems pretty intense. And then the first thing that I always, the next thing I always try to think of is like, man, I wonder what's going on with that kid's home. There's something going on at home, right, that's not right, that's just not right, that is causing them to act out in this way. 
And I try to tell, tell our boys when, when things happen to them, it's like when, when in the neighborhood or at school or wherever, when there's like, you know, that someone's being mean or ugly, it's like, hey, you know, just have a little compassion and a little patience. It's hard for a third grader and a seventh grader to figure these things out, right? Hey, have a little compassion because we don't know what they're dealing with. We don't know what they go home to, okay? So we just need to pray for them and, and be kind. And so that's that reminder for us. But sometimes we never know what someone else may be going through. But empathy is when we broaden our thinking and consider what others' lives are like. But empathy alone is, is not enough. We need to take it a step farther. We need to do something about it. And so that's true compassion. One of the best things I love about serving um, in the church and in the community is it allows us to express compassion in a very tangible way, right? When you go on a mission trip, you're expressing compassion in a very tangible way. When you're serving here in the church, whether it's a greeter or at the coffee bar, or you're serving our kids ministry or our student ministry, or you're doing something in the community with our schools, one of our partner schools going in the schools and sitting down and be, being a reading buddy with, with, a, with one of these kids that we're talking about, right? This true compassion of saying, you know what? I want to I want to serve and I want you to see the love of Jesus in the way that I live my life that, That's what true compassion is. It takes action. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6 verse 31 He said do unto others as you would like them to do unto you do unto others as you would have them do unto you And so true compassion is active and if you want compassion, it starts with being compassionate the second thing True compassion expects nothing in return. This is the beauty of our story this morning with, with David and Mephibosheth, right? Is that Mephibosheth had nothing to give King David. David acted out of true compassion for him with, with no strings attached. True compassion focuses only on what's best for others. It focuses on what's best for someone else. Putting self aside. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Don't expect anything in return. And sometimes we act in generous ways, though. You know, you think about this. Because we, we kind of know that maybe in the back of our mind, if I do something for them today, I'm going to probably need a favor down down the road. So, hey, you do me a solid today. You do something for me today, and then I'll call that favor in on down the road, right? True compassion says, you know what? I'm going to act like David did with Mephibosheth, and I'm not going to expect, there's nothing that you can give me in return, and I'm not expecting anything in return. I'm just going to act in true compassion and not expect anything back. Here's what Jesus did when someone was asking him about what it looked like to, to love other people and to love your neighbors, and they were questioning him about this, and he told them a story. I want you to listen to this story. Someone questioned Jesus about loving others and what that would look like. And, and here's what he said to illustrate his point. He said, a Jewish man was traveling. This is a very familiar story. You guys will remember this. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jer- Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. Then he stripped, they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him up and they left him dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came by, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed on the other side of the road and passed him on. A temple assistant walked by He looked over him, he saw him lying there, but he also passed on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan, Jesus is telling the story to a group of Jewish listeners, and they would have hated the Samaritan people. So it was a real shock to them when Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of the story. But look at what he says. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion 
for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him into the inn where, he, where they took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay it the next time I'm here. Now, which two of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who had been attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked. And the man replied, The one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, Yes. Yes, you got it. Now go and do the same thing. Sometimes, sometimes the teachings of Jesus can, can be so simple that it's like, doesn't there have to be more to it than that? And Jesus says here, he says, yeah, you've got it. The guy who simply picked him up, put him on his donkey, bandaged his wounds, took care of him, felt true compassion for him, took care of his medical needs and his bill, and went along his way, and never expected anything in return. He took action. He never expected anything else. And then the third thing is this. True compassion, it's a privilege. It's not a burden. Look at what Matthew chapter 25, verse 40 says this. Followers of Jesus... Showing compassion is an incredible honor. And Jesus said this, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And so when we compassionately help someone else, when we step outside of ourselves and we do something like, you know, normally I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't act in this way, you know, because it's, it could be dangerous or because I'm really uncomfortable or because I, I really don't feel equipped or I really don't feel valid or I really don't feel whatever. But when we step outside of that and we serve and we love and we're compassionate in this way that other people go, wow, I can't believe you do that, right? It's not about us or them. It's, it's about serving Jesus in those ways. And Jesus said that is that when you look at other people and when this world looks at other people and says, they're not worth anything. Don't waste your time. Don't spend your money on that. Don't go there. Don't be about that. Don't do that. Jesus says, when you turn that upside down and you look at the least of these, you look at the Mephibosheths of the world that the world says are nothing more than a dead dog and crippled and invalid and all these things, but do you say, you know what? God loves you, and I'm going to serve you in this way because that's what Jesus has called me to do. Jesus said when you do that, you're not only just doing that, but you're serving him. King David understood his compassion for Mephibosheth, honored the Lord God. David's compassion, compassionate love validated young Mephibosheth. When Mephibosheth felt this, this king giving him these things and saying, hey, you are of value. You are my best friend's son. And I don't care the condition of your physical body. I don't care about what's happened to you at this point. You're going to live in the palace with the king from now on. And I'm sure in his life at that moment, he, he felt redeemed. He felt like he really mattered in that moment. And so maybe for us, Maybe you come to this place today and you're like, I, I don't know. I don't know what God can do with my life. And God comes and he says, here's what I need you to do. I just need you to accept my love. I, I need you to accept the gift of my son. I need you to understand that your worth does not come from this world. 
It does not come from this world. It doesn't matter what you look like or where you come from, or how intelligent you are, or how many degrees you have, or how strong you are, or how beautiful you are, right? Our world says that those are the people that really matter. The best athletes, the best looking, the best this, the the smartest, the most powerful, the whatever. And, And the world says that your worth comes from all of these things, right? The things that we attain, the things that we gather, the things that we, that we own, the things that we have, you know, those who, you know, make the most money and have the most toys win, right? That's kind of what the world tells us. And then stories like this come along and God comes along and he says, no, your worth, your worth is in the fact that I created you and and that I'm the one that, that loves you. Here, here, here's a, 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 a quote. I love this quote. It says this. Listen to this. It says, you have worth apart from what you do or have. If you are breathing, and I think most of you in this room are still breathing right now, you matter. If you are breathing, you matter because you matter to the one who gave you breath, right? And so what we need to understand is that our worth comes from God. And then it doesn't matter if you're like, oh, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm older. I can't really do those things anymore. I don't feel like I'm worth much anymore more to society or to the world. Maybe some of you sit here today and feel that way. And I have to tell you, you matter because you matter to the one who gave you breath. And he's still got something for you to do. And it may be loving people in a very compassionate way. Here's my bottom line this morning. True compassion moves us to act with love, expecting nothing in return. True, true compassion moves us to act with love, expecting nothing in return. I read a story this week about a, a, a priest. His name was Father Joseph Damien. And, and Father Damien moved to Hawaii. And you think, oh, wow, that sounds really nice. But he moved to Hawaii in the, in the 1800s. It is to, it's believed in about 1840, the Hansen's disease or leprosy came to the Hawaiian Islands um, via China in the 1840s. And so leprosy was this incredibly painful, contagious disease, and everyone was scared of it. You know, you you guys have have probably heard about the conditions of leprosy before and just the skin condition that people lose fingers and toes and their nose, all kinds of things, this very painful way to die. And so what happened was when leprosy came to the Hawaiian islands, they they took this, a part of an island that was a a peninsula, you know, on three sides covered by the Pacific Ocean, 1,600-foot cliffs on the other side, and they basically said, okay, we're going to put all the lepers on this on this part of the island, and you're going to have to just have to fend for yourself. Stay away from everyone else. So they put them, you know, there, and they had caves that they lived in. They would they would drop supplies via boat, and then they would just kind of uh, wash to shore food and other supplies. They would even throw lepers overboard and say, "Just swim to shore, you know, and, and you'll you'll be okay up there." And so they were there, left to to die, to fend for themselves, and to be alone as a leper colony in Hawaii. And Father Damien chose. To go. He was the first person without leprosy to step foot onto that land. And he built a school, he built a church, he built a community there. He served those people for many years. One day, Father Damien was pouring some water from one pot to another, and some boiling hot water spilled onto his foot. And Father Damien realized that he couldn't feel that hot water. And to his horror, he he realized that he had contracted leprosy. 
Every morning, Father Damien would stand in front of the lepers and he would say at their chapel service, he would say, my fellow believers. And then he would carry on with his service for that day. On this morning, he stood in front of his friends, these lepers, and he said, my fellow lepers. Here's the quote about Father Damien's life. It says, he took their condition to express his love. Father Damien died before he was 50 years old in Hawaii on that island. He took their condition as an expression of his love. You know what that sounds like to me? (laughs) It sounds an awful lot like Jesus. When Jesus said, I'll take it. I'll take it all on. I'll take every sin condition that every human will deal with. I'll take it all and you put it on me, God, and we'll take it to the cross and it'll be defeated forever. Do you realize that that's what Jesus did for us? He took our condition and he took it to the cross and he said, it's defeated. It's gone. It's, it's over. Now you go live a life of love and compassion and you show grace and mercy just as I've shown you that same grace and mercy and compassion. So guys, this morning, here, here's, here, this is as simple as I can make it. Why in the world for a group of people that realize what Jesus has done for us through the cross, what God has done for us, the ultimate plan of salvation that came through Jesus Christ when he said, it's over. Sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated. You live in me and you live forever, right? Why in the world for a group of people that have been saved in that way, in that incredible way, why wouldn't we do anything else but love other people the same way with compassion and kindness and say, hey, I know you're struggling. I know what this world's told you, but I know the one who's taking care of it all. I know where you can find your true worth. I know where you can find your true passion. I know where you can pursue a life that's beyond this world, that's beyond this earth. Let me show you the way to Jesus, the one who's taking it all on for all of us. What an incredible picture of compassion. Would you guys pray with me? Lord God in heaven, we thank you for today. God, I thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to be in this place, to worship you, to praise your name, to gather as a family in in communion, to remember what you've done through the cross, a broken body and blood that was shed for us. God, I'm thankful for a story of a, a young man named Mephibosheth that comes into contact with a king. And a king has enough wisdom and courage and love to show compassion when he didn't have to. God, I'm thankful that you show us love and compassion and forgiveness. And you have patience with us, even when you don't have to, but you still do it. God, I thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the reminder that he took on our condition, that he took it all on himself so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could live with you in glory forever. 
And God, my prayer this morning is that if there's a person in this room that doesn't have that assurance, that doesn't have that understanding, that hasn't um, realized salvation through Jesus and are not walking with him today yet, God, that you would show them that way, show them that that's what needs to happen before they leave this place this morning. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with me? We're going to sing this invitation. If you'd like to pray with someone, Bobby's down here. Some of our other guys will be around. We'd love to pray with you. Let's sing. Church, we sing. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails. And all my days, I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, I will sing of the goodness of God. Thank you.
this week, this week, your life will intersect with someone else's life. And they'll need you to just compassionately love them with no strings attached. And you may not notice it at first, and you may miss it. Sometimes I miss it. I miss it at the stoplight. (laughs) I miss it at the grocery store. I miss it in the neighborhood. I miss it with my kids or my wife. You may miss it, but you'll get another opportunity. And maybe it'll spark something in someone to go, why would they, in a world that seems so cruel, why would they show me kindness and compassion in that way? It's got to be more. I wonder what that is. And maybe that will lead to a conversation that you'll get to have with them about who Jesus is. That's what I'm praying uh, for you guys this week. Hey, if you're new here uh, today, uh, we'd love to connect with you. There's an I'm new wall out in the lobby. Uh, there's some folks out there that would love to kind of share with you any questions, answer any questions you might have about our church. There's also the next step a room over there if you're looking to get connected with uh, kind of whatever your next step may be this summer or this fall as we get, to get ready to kick back off with small groups and life groups and, and Bible studies, those kind of things. We're going to do another Pathways in August. Hey, we had a great Pathways this past week. We've got a bunch of people here, a bunch of people joining the church. I know we have a baptism this next hour. Uh, so that's going to be awesome. I went over to Camp Calvary. We got Brody Friday, Friday, and they had five or six baptisms Friday afternoon right there with the middle school kids. Our high school group group is going. Uh, Bradley and Victoria and Ethan and a bunch of our guys are going uh, this week to the high school week camp at Camp Calvary. So we'll be praying for them that God will just continue to move in the lives of those high school students this week as well. Also, as a reminder, if you guys are reading along with us this summer, reading through the, the Gospels, uh, we're, th- we're at the end of John. We're getting around, I think, on July 1st, we start the book of Acts. So if you if you're kind of falling behind, you got some reading to catch up with this week. But remember that we're doing that this summer in June, July, and August uh, as a church. We're reading through the, uh, the New Testament. So thank you guys for being here today. We love you guys. Have an incredible week, and we'll see you here back next weekend.